todo el mundo. Hello, I'm Nipper Reed. And I'm Phil Wolf. So, settle down, have a nice cup of tea, and enjoy the Venomous Exchange Radio Podcast. Crumpets, Nipper. I want the crumpets. Well, as you've been such an extraordinarily good boy... Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, my name is Phil Wolf, and I'm joined by the one and only Mr. Nipper Reed. Hello, everybody. And tonight we have a very, very special guest, a guest that Nipper and I have been following his work for as long as we can remember, a, uh, an amazing field herper, a master educator, the uh, one and only Mr. Johan Marer. Hi, guys. With over 40 years of experience and several books authored, including The Complete Guide to Snakes of Southern Africa, Johan is one of the leading authorities on African herpetofauna. Johan is also the originator and operator of the African Snakebite Institute, or ASI. The ASI provides a variety of resources for snake awareness, first aid for snake bite, as well as venomous snake handling courses. These courses are accredited by the International Society of Zoological Sciences. Through the ASI, Johan has founded the ASF, the African Snake Bite Foundation. The foundation's goal is to establish over 20 antivenin banks throughout southern Africa, where both polyvenin and monovenant antivenin will be available 24 hours a day. So, Johan, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, it's uh, like I was saying, Nipper and I have watched your stuff for a really long time, and, and you produce amazing educational videos and literature and training courses and you know we're talking about guests to have on the show and you're at the top of the list sir so it's an honor to have you on the show 100 i mean it really is an honor to have you on the show yeah it's a, it's an absolute pleasure we just i just i just do what i love that's uh, that's about it that's cool um i mean the, the obvious question we have to ask you is what started it all off. I mean, there's a lot of things to do in South Africa. Why are you crawling around in the dirt looking for dangerous snakes? Yeah, it started It started as a youngster, uh, probably five, six years old. Um, I grew up in Durban, which is on the East Coast, um, and um, came across a snake in the garden, and my mother insisted that it be killed. It turned out to be a, a harmless brown house snake. And then um, visits to to relatives on farms all over the country. Um, we had a few uncles who farmed in, in different parts, the drier northern parts of the country, um, parts of Pumalanga, Highfelt. And um, every instance where there was an interaction with a snake, and there were many of them, the snake got killed, always. It was always the same story. And um, at the time, uh, there wasn't much literature so it was very difficult to learn about them. So what I had to do initially um, around 10, 11, 12 years old is uh, if I got a hold of a snake, it went, went into a container and I'd go along to Fitzsimmons Snake Park, which was on the beachfront. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, Fitzsimmons Snake Park, after uh, Fitzsimmons died, his accountant, Ray Parker, took over. And Ray was an accountant. He was not a herpetologist. So he... Um, um, he didn't share much information 
you know, if you took a snake along there, he would, he was also quite an introvert. So he would, he would open the door halfway and sort of lean through the door wearing a white coat as pharmacists do. And uh, you'd say to him, hi, Mr. Parker, what snake is this? And he'd say, well, that's a, a brown house snake. Oh, uh, do they eat lizards? No. Do they eat mice? Yes. Do they eat frogs? No. And you had to drag the information out of him. So it was tough going because uh, we didn't really have, uh, we didn't have um, role models. We had no one that taught us anything. And uh, it, was, it was tough going. That's incredible. Absolutely incredible. So after you were initial, when you were 12 years old, crawling around looking for your, your venomous snakes, how did you progress into, uh, did you keep snakes, like, uh, as we would call modern snake keepers now, or how did, how did that progress? Yes, it um, uh, always, always had a few snakes in, um, in um, vivariums somewhere, but uh, not much of a collection. And then in my sort of mid to late teens, I started keeping more, um, I had um, uh, was living with my father, and in the lounge we had um, the black and green mambas. In the dining room we had the the vine snakes and the wormslung and uh, wrinkles and a few cobras, and um, an outside enclosure with um, a whole bunch of stuff. You know, uh, various uh, sand snakes and house snakes and a whole bunch of stuff. And and in the bottom of the garden I had a I had an old crocodile of about a, one and a quarter meter in length called gabriel wow um, and um like excellent parenting yeah and uh, and that was the sort of the collection then at the age of about 17 um, i had a visitor someone found out from the local pet shop that i was buying mice and he worked out that i kept snakes and he came to visit and his name was uh, raymond taylor and raymond was um older than me uh, very enthusiastic um and uh, he pointed at the snakes in my enclosure and he said that um you shouldn't have Simophis in there because they're going to eat the other snakes. And I said to him, what is Simophis? And he said, the, the sand snakes. And I said to him, why are you calling them Simophis? And he said, well, that's their scientific name. And I said, well, what the hell is a scientific name? Wow. And he, he started explaining this to me. This was, I was 16, 17 years old. I had no idea, never heard of it. Um, I, I, I said it was a I, snow start. I don't, I don't wish to be rude, but I'm guessing we're of a similar age. Um, and we are pre-internet people. So, um, yeah. <laughs> so I, I mean, don't I, know I, what your age is there, Nipper, but uh, I've just turned, um, I'm heading for 65 this year. I'm, you're a little bit older than me. I'm 53. Yeah, yeah. I'm 53. Two. But I'm still yeah. pre-internet. And yes. you're exactly right. I mean, these days, everyone can literally just look at their smartphone and find out within seconds any information they want over any species they see in the wild or any species they keep. Absolutely. But for someone Absolutely. like yourself, back in the day, I mean, there probably wasn't even a great deal of reference work um, easily available. You probably had to rent it, you know, pre-order it from a library to find a book on South African snakes at the time. So at the time, it was, um, it was basically the big uh, 1962 Fitzsimmons snakes of Southern Africa, which was a bit of a doorstopper. And very expensive. I mean, there's no ways that we could could afford a book like that. Um, and then there were one or two little books um, by the late John Fisser, What Snake Is That? Uh, but there was very little. You, if you went to a bookstore, uh, you wouldn't find a snake book on the shelves. I can, I can wow. imagine. And also, um, were you keeping venomous at that time, or were you just 
Um, yes. You, you were keeping venomous. Yeah, yeah. I was keeping black mambas, green mambas, uh, vine snakes, boomslang, cape cobra, uh, runkles, um, puff adders, um, <laughs> and we didn't we didn't really have equipment, you know. So initially, that was um, my next that was my next question because it's <laughs> it's it's like a, it's like a big industry now. I mean, right. you yes. can lit literally a click on Amazon. And you can get hex armor gloves. You can get snake hooks in any length you want. You know, you can any any bit of kit you need, visors, anything. But back then, you'd have had to be making your own kit. Well, but there was nothing available. You know, uh, snake tongs were unheard of. Um, snake hooks, you took an old golf club and you modified it. And um, so our initial um, black mamba catches, um, this was with... Uh, um, a formidable herpetologist or field worker by the name of Gordon Sitaro. Um, the uh, Sitaro's dwarf chameleon, Bradipodian Sitaro, is named after him. Uh, wow. So Gordon and myself would go out to a, a very good spot for mambas, which was um, about a half an hour's drive from where we lived. And uh, the strategy was that you would walk, walk along uh, the bush very, very slowly, very quietly, and you'd see a mamba basking on a shrub, uh, often after a good meal. And you'd approach it as slowly as you can. And the moment the snake started moving, you had to dash and get it by the tail. And then once you grab it by the tail, it spins around to bite, obviously. So you literally right. pull it off balance, get it that side. The head comes around to bite you. It goes that way. And you do this until you tire it out. And then we would literally let the snake get its head into a shrub. And it would hook its head around a branch. And then you'd grab it behind the head. Wow. It's insane. That is insane. Given today's safety protocols, that is really insane. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Crazy days. And I, I presume there wasn't um, a lot of anti-venom available at that time. Oh, we had no idea. Um, it wasn't even a, an issue. In fact, uh, what Fitzsimmons Snake Park did do at the time was they sold a, a, a kit that contained two vials of polyvenin anti-venom, um, which we now know is an absolute waste of time. If, if you have a, a bad black mamba bite and they have two vials of anti-venom, you're better off having an ice cream. Wow. They just do nothing. Wow. That's yeah. incredible. Different Absolutely times. Incredible. Different yeah, I think I was, I was reading there was a, a, until, I can't remember, I want to say it was like 1990, maybe it was 1989, until they had perfected some kind of anti- some kind of monovalent property to black mamba antivenin, it was 100% fatal. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a fallacy, and 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 part of the reason for that is that um, you've got to look at the sample size. Okay. So you know, I've um, when we talk about allergic reactions to to antivenin, right? Uh, we say that it's about 30 to 40 percent of patients that have an allergic uh, reaction to antivenin, and about a quarter of those might go into anaphylaxis. But we had one instance where we had um, seven children bitten uh, by snakes and received antivenom, and all seven of them had anaphylaxis. So that sample size yeah. was 100%. Um, nowadays, uh, we see um, a lot of uh, black mamba victims surviving. And in fact, the one study that was done in Zululand over a five-year period, um, they had 879 snake bites documented. Wow. And five of them were black mamba bites and all five survived. There wasn't a single fatality. And these are rural people that still have to get to a hospital. Wow. That's incredible. 
Now, do you, is there any, I mean, there, I don't think there's a way to tell if it was, I, I've never heard of a, of any of Mamba giving a dry bite, but do you yeah, feel we, like we it see was, a few of those. okay, I was gonna say, did you feel like it's a, a, a residual amount of venom on the fang, just enough to give a, a some kind of symptom, but not necessarily enough to be f- fatal? Yeah, we, we, we see, uh, we see every now and every now and then we'll see a black bomber bite with uh, virtually no symptoms. Wow. That's um, not unheard of. Incredible. So, just to take you back, so you're now 15, 16, 17. You're out in the bush catching mambas. Where, where do we go from there? So, uh, when I finished high school, I, um, I went to school a bit early. So, I got out of school uh, uh, too young to drive a, a motor car. Um, and in those days, we had to do two years military training, compulsory. So uh, I joined the South African police, and I ended up uh, very soon after training, I ended up in, uh, in the Narcotics Bureau in Durban. So we were dealing with, uh, you know, uh, drugs, etc. Um, I was there for two years, and from there I went to the Durban City Police, which was a far slicker outfit, uh, a lot more fun. Uh, and it was more playing cowboys and crooks than the previous job because we um, we would be there when there's action. And once we arrest the guys, we just gave them to the South African police and they had to find cells and take fingerprints. And we were back in the road having fun. Um, <laughs> roughly at the same time, yeah. so I was, uh, just, let me just get this right, uh, 19, 20 years old, uh, the Fitzsimmons Snake Park was purchased by a Fritz Muller. And we would we got to know him well. We'd hang around there, and I sort of decided that I I, I really wanted to do a bachelor of science degree. And I went and asked him if he had worked me for the few months till the end of the year when the new uh, university intake happens. And uh, I got a job there, and I, I was there for about six months. And before I could get to university, I was offered a job by Rod Patterson of Transvaal Snake Park. Now at the time. Transvaal Snake Park, and I've traveled the world and looked at snake parks. At the time, Transvaal Snake Park was one of the finest snake parks in the world. It was a mind blow. It was uh, they've just built a new a new section that which they call the Terraquarium, forty three exhibits, um, beautifully done. It was it was incredible. You know, you'd you'd see a massive large enclosure with the rockery and a, a dozen Western Diamondback rattlesnakes crawling around, and you'd go around a corner. And then be a, a double volume enclosure with water at the bottom, with um, snake neck terrapins and water dragons diving in. And the next enclosure would be black mambas, and then a gila monsters in the next one. And it just went on forever. And in fact, when I started there, uh, I didn't recognize 95% of the reptiles because I'd never seen them in my life. You wow. know, we had Martamata terrapins, we had uh, taipans, red bellied black snakes, king cobra. Uh, it was just incredible. So I joined Transvaal Snake Park, and it was uh, it was it was really a massive learning curve for me, and um, and I never got to university. I was there for three years, uh, learned a great deal. Rod Patterson was an excellent tutor. Um, started um, I started um, serious photography, writing for magazines, and um, and I left there after three years, and then I wrote my first book, uh, Snake Versus Man, in my early twenties. And that book came out in 1984. 
I know what Nipper and I are doing the minute this podcast is over. Oh, you know it. We're going for that book. I'm already looking on it on Amazon. Hundred <laughs> percent. I'm gonna hunt it down. And then, yes, and then quite a few things happen. Uh, you know, I, I, I sort of learned what I could at the snake park. I got bored, um, and then um, I went back to Durban. I, I read the book. I tried a few things. They didn't really work out well. And then a bit of a checkered career. I started a newspaper uh, just south of Johannesburg. And uh, to this day, the newspaper is still going exceptionally well. Uh, I'm no longer an owner of it, but I started a newspaper. And um, a year after I started the newspaper, uh, I had a phone call from some Israelis who I'd met uh, at a World Crocodile Conference back in my snake park days. And they asked if I would help set up a commercial crocodile farm at Sun City and run that. And well, heck, that sounds wonderful. So off I went and I helped them build a crocodile farm and uh, we started farming crocodiles commercially. We had 274 adult crocodiles, a massive wow. facility. Um, we were producing thousands of eggs in the first year. And um, it was an interesting time because uh, this back in 80, 1985, we had about 40 crocodile farms in South Africa. And there's a lot of smoke, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors. You know, a lot of guys think you can make a root of money out of crocodile skins and all that sort of jazz. It's not that easy. And uh, one thing that we noticed very quickly was that um, most of the crocodile farms were losing over 90% of their hatchlings in the first year. Wow. So there was massive fatality. Um, and no one really knew why. Um, and I got involved with uh, a Professor Harry Smith at the University of Pretoria, and he was a, um, an animal nutritionist. And we started playing around with different diets. So we had various statistical groups, and we give the one group uh, red meat only, the other one red meat and chicken. We tried a bit of starch. We tried a bit of marine fish. We tried whatever we could. Were, and were, within were a year, all... we solved the problem. We, uh, a year later we had a 98% survival rate of hatchlings. Wow. Now, so, were these all Nilotus? I, I farmed crocodiles for about eight years. I was involved in that industry for about eight years. Very, very was, cool. Uh, good times, very interesting. Got very involved with the crocodile specialist group, uh, traveled the world presenting papers all over the USA, Thailand, Zimbabwe. Um, I, I wrote about, with, with Professor, Professor Smith, I think we wrote about 42 papers on uh, crocodile nutrition and incubating eggs and hatchability and fertility. Uh, we also produced a book called the, uh, the conservation and the utilization of the Nile crocodile in Southern Africa. Wow. That's cool. Um, um, going back to the diet. Yeah. Just I'm really interested. because I mean, both Phil and I keep a lot of stuff. I mean, back in the day, there wasn't such a, an interest in, proper diet it was convenient diet for animals rather than what's best for the animal i would imagine um, yes. did you give a lot of for the actual hatchlings were you giving it insects prey as well or anything to the baby crocodiles to baby crocodiles were you no we didn't them? have a good source of that you know one of the problems you have with commercial crocodile farming throughout the world is you need a lot of food and you need it readily available and you want it as cheaply as possible so what most of the farmers were doing is they were relying on mortality chicken animals from chicken farms but that was part of the problem because these chickens were dying from gram negative diseases like salmonella and right. reptiles are susceptible to that yeah so you're feeding your your hatchling crocodiles contaminated meat 
And the moment your stress levels are a little bit higher, so they just lose condition and they get sick. And you're keeping, um, you know, maybe several hundred crocodiles in one enclosure. They're all heated. And uh, when you have a disease outbreak, everybody gets it. Yeah. Incredible. So where, where did we go from crocodile farming? Um, so I did that for eight years. And um, I wrote, uh, uh, during that time, I wrote my first version of the Complete Guide to Snakes of Southern Africa. Um, and um, I met, uh, so I had, a, I had a very good relationship with my publisher. And uh, while still crocodile farming, my publisher, uh, Basil van Royen, came to visit me and he offered me a position of marketing director of uh, of book, book publishing house, Southern Books. And um, I'd, I'd often spoke at their sales conferences and I had some uh, pretty entrepreneurial ideas about business and I thought it might be a good idea. So I joined Southern Books as a marketing director and it was a bit of a disaster because I had to arrive at work with a pinstripe suit every day, wearing a tie, sitting board meetings. Uh, yeah. I always said that you, you take minutes and you waste hours. Um, and it didn't work out very well. So after about 18 months, they actually um, got rid of me, got a two month salary and a, and a handshake and, and off I went. And uh, it was quite, uh, quite scary because uh, I had no idea what to try next. Um, but in my time at the publishing house, I met an Indian couple who traded in excess books, remainder books. So all of our books that we supplied to bookstores that came back slightly damaged, they would buy very cheap and sell them at flea markets. And they suggested that we start a bookstore together. So I had no money. I had no other um, way of earning a, a living. And uh, so we started this tiny little bookstore in a, in a very popular mall called Eastgate. And um, I called the bookstore Fascination. And the fascination came from a book about snakes. So there was a book um, that was probably done in the 80s or so, or even maybe even a bit earlier, where someone um, photographed a bunch of snakes and they made a, a regular-sized book just full of pretty photographs, and they called it Fascination. So that's where the bookstore's name came from. And um, so I was in this partnership. I was behind the cash register selling books seven days a week. And uh, after six months, I wasn't that keen on, on this whole retail thing. But, um, and I suggested to my partners that they can take over the business. And they said, no, 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 you take it over. And uh, they put quite a bit of money in, but they very kindly let me pay them back the money they put in um, without interest. So they said, even if it takes me, you know, I can give them $10 a month for the rest of my life type of thing. Wow. So I took over the bookstore and I, um, uh, it's, things started working out very well. And I put a lot of effort in. And I opened a second store and a third and a fourth. And uh, eight years later, I had 50 plus bookstores. Wow. Um, and I was traveling, I was doing the London Book Fair and the American Book Fair and buying bulk stock. Uh, and then I started uh, scratching around in New York and I started a lingerie shop. And then I started a ladies' accessory shop. And then I started some gift stores where I was selling um, pretty much anything that's worthless and collects dust. Um, that went into the gift stores. They were alternative gift stores. They were called the Barking Gecko. And um, we sold the uh, pewter dragons, the myth and, myth and magic dragons. We sold um, dream catchers and rain sticks and yeah, whatever. That's fantastic. And I was in, I was in retail for about, um, about 15 years. Um, in the meantime, I wrote the 
current version of the complete guide to snakes. I also wrote uh, Snakes and Snake Bites while I was busy with the bookstores. Um, and it grew, into, it grew into monstrosity. I had about 500 employees, 28 people in head office. Um, we were turning over about um, $15 million a year. Um, and then in 2008, with the economic crunch, it closed down. I lost wow. everything. Yeah, wow. we um, uh, had a few tough months. And uh, what also happened at the same time is we had power outages in South Africa. Uh, that's when it all started. So people would be in the mall and all the lights go off and they go home. And right. um, you don't have sales. Um, so after, so once uh, the retail was history, um, I started uh, the African Snake Bite Institute. That's, awesome. and that's a whole different story. That is a whole different story. Yeah. That's, why we've, that's why we've got you here today. Yeah, that's the next, <laughs> yeah. that's the next chapter. So, so if I can just do a quick recap. So you're a curious youngster who's playing with the, the wonders of the sub-Saharan African bush. And then you start keeping legitimately. And then you, you finish school, go to the reptile park, do some time there. Oh, there was police work in there as well. Might forgive me. Yeah. That's a hell of a ride, man. Yeah, that's a hell of a ride. (laughs) It was fun. That's brilliant. Yeah. And still, you know, writing books in between. Phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. I mean, writing the book for Southern Africa. I mean, it it is the benchmark book for Southern African field, field herping. It is, you know, it is... As, as I said to you earlier on, the layout has been copied by so many subsequent field guides. The photography in it is excellent. It, it, it's just an all-round fabulous... You know, I read it often. I've never heard South Africa, but I still go back to that book and read through it because it's just such a brilliant book to read. It's a fantastic and one of the one of the fascinating things about the book is there isn't a single digital photograph in it. They're all from slides. Really? Really? Now that, I mean, again, I'm a, Phil's a youngster, but I'm quite old. And I, having done both, I'm, I'm, I'd love my digital photography now, but having had to do film, people of new generations do not understand the difference. If I look that- through, if I look through an old field guide or, you know, even a coffee table book and I, you know, you'll see a picture of, uh, an emerald tree boa from 1950 or whatever. The the work that has gone into getting that picture is so much more than just somebody that can snap 400 images, check yeah. that he's got the, the lighting right, check the ISOs right, everything. That's fine. If, if you're shooting, I mean, you know the score, but for the younger people, you're up to your neck in water or whatever, taking your picture, you've probably got 36 images to expose if you're lucky. Yes. And you don't know if you've got a decent image until weeks later. Correct. That's the thing. You, you know, Correct. you can't check your light parameters. You can't check anything. It's just... And there's no Photoshop. You can't... There was no Photoshop. You couldn't go and correct those no. problems later. You can't you can't correct anything. It's it's just, and when you see these older field guides, I mean, even the cogger like the cogger books from Australia. Yes, yeah, it's it's phenomenal that people took such great pictures 
and, and to be fair, the cameras, although the lenses were high quality then, if you're looking at the accessories, like the flashes, there was yes. no slave, no slave flashes or anything like that. There's very basic so would, light diffusers. We would, um, I'd make my own brackets with two little flashes and then I'd stick it in a tripod um, and then photograph, let's say, a frog. And then I'd measure the distance from the flash to the frog, write down my, my F-stop, go a half a stop over, half a stop under. You get your results four days later. You go back to your notes and everything's washed out. And the next time you go a bit further away and, and it, was, it was a nightmare. Um, I, 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 it, I just have just such admiration for anybody that had to take field herping pictures like that. I mean, you know, even now when I go when I go field herping, I, if the, you know if there's a species, I will take hundreds of pictures and probably keep five. Yeah, and yeah, and, and you just didn't, you know. And I've had species that I've searched for days and only found one of that particular species. Or I've done three trips and never found that species, and then seen one which you have to get pictures of. It's not like you can just pop back the next day. It's it's incredible how people achieved the results they did back then. So, so one of the things that we're busy with, uh, my colleague Luke Kemp and myself, is I've just switched to mirrorless, and I've decided uh, we, we're busy with a book on the reptiles and amphibians of Southern Africa, which will be about eight hundred and fifty species. But wow. we've, I've decided that I'm going to re-photograph every reptile and amphibian in Southern Africa. So I'm starting from scratch. That is amazing. Absolutely what, an, awesome. what a mission. What a mission goal. I'm actually, I have the book here. I, I'm just flicking through now, looking at the pictures. I just think that's amazing. And what's Absolutely. crazy is, it, I mean, Nipper can contest to it because Nipper has copious amounts of field work, infinitely more than I do. But just to know that you've photographed all of South Africa's reptiles and amphibians, and now you're going to go and do it all over again. Like, that is incredible. That is a, it's amazing. I'm just looking at page 116, the coral snake. What if, I mean, that is a fabulous picture. And to think that was not a digital picture is... Uh, I'm just yeah. going to give up. I'm going to hang my camera up. I'm going to stop, I think. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I just, I love the comparison photos too, is, is that not only do you have, you know, like a bush snake and angusticeps in the same, you know, comparison left and right, but you have them in the same pose, in the same type of foliage, in the same type of lighting. And it, it's phenomenal. It it's phenomenal. phenomenal. You were like, you, you had goals in mind and you executed them flawlessly on animals yep. that pretty much are fantastic. Yeah. Oh, Awesome. For those listening to this, uh, we Nipper and I told each other we weren't going to fangirl too hard over this one, but sometimes, sometimes you just got to let it happen. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah. superb! So after the bookstores and everything else, the retail establishments, you started the African Snakebite Institute. Yes. How did that come uh, about? Well, um, it started off. Um, we have a system in South Africa called uh, the CETAs. And what the government did is they decided that a lot of people with no qualifications need to be trained up at a very low level so that they can find themselves employment. So what they, they, they levied a small tax on people's salaries 
uh, which brought in uh, hundreds of millions of, of dollars. And the idea was that if you had a CETA course that you presented, um, the government would, the, the people that did the course wouldn't have to pay. The government would pay you. And um, a very good friend of mine, Donald Stradholm, who had a snake park, uh, approached me and he said, look, he's been doing some, some training, uh, but there's this opportunity. If we can get a CETA registration, we can train thousands of people and, uh, and we'll make good money. And um, so that's how the whole thing started. At the time, there were two or three people doing snake training, but um, not very sophisticated. Um, so it was a, not, not a very well-developed market at all. And at the time, you could barely buy any equipment in this country. No one stocked tongs. No one had hooks. So you just couldn't get anything. Can I, um, so, can I yes, just no, ask, no. just for, for people that um, are probably not as sad as me and read snake books all day, can you give us an, a rough idea of the number of venomous species that we're talking about, significant venomous species in South Africa? Okay, so and, we, we, usually, we usually deal with Southern Africa. Yeah. Um, we have uh, uh, roughly 176 species of snakes. Uh, about 75 of them have no venom whatsoever. Lots of mildly venomous ones. Then we have 29 species that we don't have anti-venom for that could put you in hospital. Snakes like the rhombic night adder, uh, bibran stiletto snake, uh, berg adders. So these snakes are snakes that haven't caused fatalities but they could make life very difficult for you. And then if we include the different subspecies, we have about 20 deadly snakes. So those are, in essence, uh, the mambas and the cobras, the runkles, although we haven't had a fatality in over 40 years, uh, the boomslung, the vine snake, uh, the kaboon adder, and the puff adder. So those, those are the deadly, uh, the so-called potentially deadly snakes. So we're right. looking at about 20 species. So generally, we'd say that about, 11% of our snake species around there are considered potentially deadly. For the vine snake in South Africa, we haven't had any fatalities, but there have been two or three fatalities further north. Uh, now, we don't is, that because, is that because no one's been bit or because... No, we, we get the odd bite, but I think, um, I think there are two, uh, two major aspects. First of all, um, the subspecies uh, Theratornis capensis oatsi gets up to about 1,7 meters, whereas our one very rarely exceeds about 1,2 meters. So it's a smaller yeah. snake with a smaller venom yield. But I think that the other big issue is the fact that they have duvenoids glands and that it's, uh, they, need, they need to chew a bit to get a lot of venom in. And right. the, the few bites that we see, uh, I doubt whether the fangs even penetrate in those bites. So if you look at the, the, the fang position in, in the Wormslung, it's roughly under the eye. If you look at the fang position in Thelotornis, it's right back in the mouth, nearly right at the, at the end. So they, they really have to open their mouth very, very wide to get a good bite. So I think it's a combination of those. And how, how many roughly snake bites are we seeing a, a year in South Africa? Okay, so South Africa, I don't have data for Southern Africa because we don't know what goes on in Mozambique and Zimbabwe and etc. So my estimation is that we have about 4,000 bites a year, of which about 800 people are hospitalized, um, and we have about 10 to 12 fatal bites. Wow. Um, what we don't quantify properly, and I think this is really important, is that we really look at morbidity. 
So a lot of these people, like spitting cobra, Mozambique spitting cobra bites and puffer bites, people don't easily die. But there's a lot of morbidity. A lot of these people uh, have to go for a, a half a dozen operations afterwards, skin grafts. Um, people are disfigured. You, have, uh, you sometimes have loss of limbs, not that often, but that happens as well. So morbidity is um, it's a big issue because if, if, you have a, if you have a rural farmer with a family of 12 people living in the bush and they are living off the land and he gets bitten by a puffer and loses a hand, you have 12 people who can't survive. Yeah. So it really is a big issue. Yeah, it's that vicious cycle that, you know, we always speak about in, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, people getting bad information and then people resenting medical treatment because of uh, stories they heard from other, you know, family members or, yes. or other neighbors and stuff. And it just, it goes round robin. We had a, we had a case about five days ago, uh, a young man, um, was I think he they live in a farm he was bitten on the foot and um the the aunt got a hold of me she said that uh, this young man was bitten on the foot he has a wife with a, a few young kids uh puff out a bite they sent me photographs it was quite badly swollen and I said to them you need to get that guy to hospital because what we find with puff out a bites you can even give anti-venom a day or two later, we still see pretty good results. With Mozambique spitting cobras, on the other hand, if you don't give a lot of antivenom within four or five hours, it's a waste of time. Wow. So they were updating me the next day. No, he's still not. He went to the doctor. He got some cortisone and some pain tablets. Uh, and I said, well, that's not going to help. You know, it's a puff at a bite. Uh, and uh, the next day, he was in severe pain. Uh, he subsequently, I think, Two or three, three days after the bite, ended up in hospital. And um, he's had major surgery. He's had, um, I doubt if he's going to even uh, save the foot. Wow. Um, so that's, that is problematic. So uh, as Phil said, are you seeing uh, a big reliance on local medicines? Um, or <coughs> is there an ethos that they, they will go to hospital and they, they see that as a, as an immediate thing, or will they rely on maybe traditional methods first? And if that doesn't work, then they'll go to hospital. No, but it's not as bad as North Africa. You know, in, right. in, in the Sahil district, with all those echoes there, we we, we see about 20,000 fatalities a year. Jesus. Uh, yeah. Because they, <coughs> pardon, they, they are relying on, on traditional remedies. In South Africa, it's problematic in uh, the rural areas. Um, they still uh, often rely on uh, on traditional healers. But we do have a very good system of clinics throughout South Africa. So it's quite easy for them to get to a clinic. And then in the high-risk areas, we'll have like a major hospital that will service 20 other smaller hospitals and clinics. So uh, the treatment is not that bad. We, uh, we tend to get them to those clinics. Um, some of the other challenges that we face is that the areas that don't see a lot of snake bites don't have experienced snake bite doctors. Uh, and that's where African Snake Bite Institute has come in in a big way because I, I will often in an evening get two or three phone calls from doctors asking for advice. Um, so we provide that service. Um, the next issue, of course, is antivenom. And very often, uh, the rural hospitals that are in low-risk areas won't stock antivenom because it's very expensive. And um, even in the high-risk areas, they often run out of antivenom. So even in uh, like central Johannesburg, I will sometimes get a phone call 
eight o'clock on a Friday night where the main hospital has run out of antivenom. And wow. the manufacturers, um, they say they're a pharmaceutical company. So they work from eight to five, Mondays to Fridays. They don't help you on weekends. Yeah. And um, this has prompted us to start the African Snakebite Institute Foundation, which, uh, which uh, uh, Phil has already mentioned. And, and one of our um, missions with the foundation is we want to uh, set up 25 antivenom banks where ample antivenom is available 24-7. So we're going to start throughout the country, from Messina in the north down to Cape Town to Johannesburg, Kimberley, Uppington, uh, all over the place. And we want to start off, um, uh, we, we're getting various universities involved with their pharmaceutical divisions. We're getting hospitals involved. Um, and we, at the moment, we're busy. We need to raise about a about 100,000 US dollars to stock all of these antivenom banks. So we're busy wow. with that. And uh, I think it'll take us a year or so and we'll achieve it. Now, through the ASF, are you guys almost exclusively using the stuff from SAVP or are you going to yes. branch out and use like some of the InnoSERP and, and some like that? Well, uh, that's becoming very, very interesting because I'm also very involved with the World Health Organization. And there's uh, a few massive initiatives. The one is to reduce snake bite fatalities by 50% within the next five years or so. And uh, we just received a document yesterday where they're looking at uh, pan-African antivenoms uh, that have better efficiency. Um, so at this stage, we're only using South African vaccine producers. It's an excellent product, but it does have side effects. Um, the price, you know, we're paying about um, $120 a vial, $130 a vial, which compared with uh, American antivenom is inexpensive. Yeah. But the problem is that for most uh, serious bites, if you're looking at a black mamba bite or a spitting cobra bite, you need um, 12 to 15 vials to start off with if you want to treat it well. Right. Right. And what is the average income in those areas? Uh, close to zero. Close to zero. So um, our, our state hospitals provide them with free antivenom. Right. Okay. So if they go to a state hospital, there's no major costs involved. Um, if you're talking um, a private hospital, uh, an average snake bite in South Africa to treat uh, cost about uh, ten thousand US dollars for one snake bite. Interesting. And what's funny is, if I have all of my proper documentation, and uh, forgive me if my conversion's wrong, but if I have all my proper documentation in the US and I acquire some of the SAFP stuff, right? SAMR, however you want to pronounce it. You guys are selling it for like, what, 100 and like 80 Rand, maybe or 120 Rand? No, 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 no. It's 1,920, 1,910 Rand per bar. Okay, which comes so out to- It's about $130. Okay. Is that's, our price. That same vial for me in the States, if I went to a hospital- and I didn't have my own, and one of the local venom banks gave it to me, it would be approximately twenty-four to three thousand dollars a vial. Dollars. Dollars a vial. Wow. Yeah. So that's <laughs> why there's a lot of smaller individuals like myself and some other guys that were starting to go through all the paperwork process to yeah. acquire it legitimately because the conversion from the hospital is astronomical. But yeah, that's a whole other topic for another time, but <clears throat> Excuse me. What I was what I was going to say is, is SAVP or South African vaccine producers, 
are they going to start working with more lifealized stuff like inner serp is or is it strictly going to be refrigerated liquid for now i don't think much is going to happen there in the foreseeable okay. future uh, snake bite is so minor an issue in south africa and savp is a, a parastatal um you know, we can even, um, if, 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 if one can take the current antivenom and put it through one more process of purification, we can virtually eliminate anaphylaxis. Wow. But no one's interested because the moment we tamper, so our antivenoms are registered with our Medicines Control Council. The moment you tamper with a recipe, you have to then go back to clinical trials. Oh, and you've got okay. to retest the new product. And then you're looking at a cost of about... Um, uh, probably about $2 million to get that done. Wow. So that's wow. not going to happen. Yeah. And if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? Correct. Yep. Yeah. So which species would you say is the most problematic in South Africa? No, but that's a good question. Um, so one of the, at the moment, what we're seeing mainly are uh, Atractaspis bibroni bites, the uh, bibron stiletto snake. Wow. And part of the reason is that a lot of people pick them up. They think they're harmless. And we have no anti-venom. There's no real treatment. You get a bite from one of those. We ask you to rest for six days. And after six days, the doctors have another look at it. And then they decide, do they start debribing? Has it got better? Do they start looking at amputation? Um, and uh, we deal with uh, sometimes four, five, six of those bites per day. Really wow. is a big problem. And that's, that's um, seasonal as well, right? It is seasonal. The moment yeah. the rain comes... They're on the surface. Wow. So right now they, they're moving. And um, we can we can road cruise certain areas uh, in Limpopo uh, for an hour or two, and we'll catch eight, eight of them in an evening crossing wow. the road. So they're abundant. Um, the biggest problem, hands down, is the Mozambique spitting cobra. Um, widespread, uh, locally abundant, uh, voracious feeder. They eat anything. You can feed them whatever you want to. Um, and what happens with these Mozambique spitting cobras is they very often end up in houses. So it's sort of accidental. They're on the hunt. They get to a wall. They turn left or right. Uh, they get to a sliding door that's open and they're in the house. Or they get to the front door and there's a gap under the front door big enough for them to squeeze in. And they get into the house and they hunt. They're looking for food. And they actually locate people asleep in their beds, uh, sometimes rural people sleep uh, on the floor. Uh, sometimes um, Americans that have come here and paying top dollar in the most expensive lodge, and they bite people. They bite people in the face. They bite people on the chest. Um, and we've looked at this very, very carefully, and we have no doubt that it's a feeding response. Absolutely no question. So they're finding the mammal in the bed, and they're biting, and uh, we see... 30, 40 kids, often babies, being bitten in the eye, bitten in the face. Uh, we've had cases where guys, the one guy sleeps with his elbow hanging off the side of the bed. He got bitten on the elbow twice. We had another case where a guy was lying in his bed trying to fall asleep in a very expensive game lodge, and the next thing, boom, bite on the hand before the snake even got onto his bed. And what we find with the SAVP polyvalent antivenom is it covers 10 species, but it is least effective on Mozambique spinning cobras. So wow. what you need to do with those bites is you need to give the patient 12 vials immediately within an hour or two or three or four. 
six hours after the bite, you don't even have to bother to waste the antivenom because it just doesn't do anything. And one of the things that happens with these Mozambique spitting cobra bites is we see these skip lesions. So a bite on the hand, you'll see a patch, a purple patch here and another one here. As the lymphatics spread that venom, it starts popping out through the, through the skin. And terrible bites. We see really, really severe tissue damage with them. Wow. Not a lot of fatalities, but a lot of morbidity. And what's, what's causing them to bite the random elbow or the random foot? I mean, they, it's not like it's think, a... They just think it's something they can eat. They just smell a mammal. Yeah. Simple as that. Wow. Incredible. It's bizarre. But it's a, so 99% of bites in the face, or let me rephrase that, 99% of bites in South Africa where people are in their beds are Mozambique spinning cobras. Wow. Wow. It's, it's crazy. And then in Namibia, we see exactly the same with the zebra cobra. The majority of people bitten in their beds in Namibia are bitten by zebra cobras. Wow. Now, is this something that could be, in theory, prevented with like a mosquito net? or is Absolutely. It, yeah. So, uh, so we do recommend people to, uh, on farms and at lodges, to put uh, mosquito doors. Those doors are closed permanently mm -hmm. with a mesh. Yeah. We suggest that people sleep under mosquito nets, but uh, it's it's very very difficult, you know. It's it's to change people's culture now, uh, get them to sleep in a way different from what they've been doing for hundreds of years is not yeah. that easy. Yeah, incredible. Yeah, and is is the the spitting cobra is that a, a common species? Very very common. Where it occurs, it's very common. I've I've caught up to six in the morning. And correct wow. me if I'm wrong, but they also have no problem living in heavily urbanized areas in terms of correct. concrete Absolutely. and, you know, they, because they're so opportunistic that yes. they don't care. They're going to live under a trash can yes. or, you know, in a garage or wherever. So, so next on the list then would be the puff adder. And um, there has been some phenomenal work done by, um, Graham Alexander and his team at Vitz on, uh, on puffer bites. And um, what they have found is that adult puff adders in camouflage mode, in other words, when, they, when they're hiding in the bush, don't bite. You can step on them, they don't bite. So uh, during one study, they, we had a few students who accidentally stood on these snakes and weren't bitten. Wow. So... Um, they, they did an experiment, and I think they did about 40 experiments where they filled a gumboot with rocks and went and deliberately stood on puff adders in camouflage. And 40 out of 40, not a single one bit, not a single one puffed. They did nothing. Really? <laughs> they just froze, and they remained in their own mind invisible. So much so that some of them were killed by giraffes standing on them in the sky. Wow. <laughs> so what we, what we already know is that a high percentage of bites that we see are juveniles and sub-adults. Because these young snakes aren't established yet, and they're on the move. So they're moving far more than the, the well-established ones, and because they're more mobile, they get stood up. Interesting. Very interesting. And that's that's specifically for Ariatans and not any of the other dwarf bitters at all. Yes. Uh, to, uh, as far as we know, I would <coughs> sorry, I would suspect that uh, it's going to be similar for Bitis carbonica. 
because Kabanika occurs um, in northern Zululand, and we never hear a bite from Kabanika. Never. It's unheard really? of. Um, it's totally unheard of, which is uh, quite amazing. Which is incredible because, I mean, I've obviously I've never seen Gabonica in the wild, but the ones I keep in captivity, if I reach in with hemostats to remove a piece of feces, it attacks the, the feces. Yeah. And it's, it, yeah. I just, that's fascinating to me. It makes me wonder if is, that's because they're, they know they're in the wild or not. But would that be Gabonica or rhinoceros? Uh, both. Okay. Yeah. Both the the rhinoceros is way more yes. quick quick to go way more yes yeah yeah that's uh, that, that's pretty interesting uh, black mambas so this you know a lot of people regard black mambas as these highly aggressive snakes and all the myths that go with it um, black mamba bites are very few and far between and quite often what happens is someone accidentally surprises the snake. Um, so these snakes, one of the things that they love doing is basking in the sun. And it appears that they bask in the sun and fall asleep. So they're sitting really? there fast asleep. And the next thing you come walking past, and we had, we had one case of a farmer who drove past on a, motor, on a motorbike. And as he put his leg down, the snake had a fright and bit him in the leg. Hmm. Um, we see this quite often, but they're very skittish. And if you give them half a chance, they're gone. If they have half a chance, they escape. Uh, to give you an idea, in the greater Durban area, uh, the snake removers are removing uh, over 100 black mambas a year from suburban gardens. Wow. And how many bites do we see? Zero. Oh, that's incredible. Incredible. Yeah. Amazing. Oh, that's awesome. And then is it also seasonal with their basking? Are they doing it more in the cooler months or no? Uh, no, so uh, so if we look at our snake bite statistics, 80% plus of our bites happen in the warm summer months from November till April. Okay. That's when you see most of the bites. So they come out in the morning, they bask, and then they go into the shade. Very interesting. Very cool. And I noticed too, uh, just because I'm perpetually on the southern african snake id groups on facebook and stuff just because i have to see it all you know um i feel like there's so many quote-unquote boom slang sightings that they assume it's like a bright green male and it's not it's a bush snake or whatever is that also seasonal too is all these people seeing these lush green snakes basking yeah it's mainly again mainly in the hot summer months um uh, they, they certainly slow down in winter, but you know uh, where you have a lot of your harmless green snakes, the philothamnus. It is uh, a lot of that is coastal and that's subtropical, so you see a bit of quite a bit of movement in winter as well. Um, but um, it, it does slow down. So what what about things like garter snakes? Are you, are you seeing significant bites from them, or are they not? Um, not we've uh, documented a few recently. Um, there's a paper that I did with Luke Faberg on, on one of the garter snakes. But no, bites are very infrequent and invariably snake handlers or keepers. Yeah. Uh, garter snakes are not common. Uh, we, um, yeah. <coughs> we come across a handful a year. And some of them, like, uh, like the high-felt garter snake, uh, Elapsoides nevadi media, I haven't seen one of those in about 10 years in the wild. Really? Yeah, so... Obviously, a lot of these things we aren't targeting specifically. 
Sure. Yeah. If we target a species, you know, it would have better results. But we, we're hoping in general, and we just don't see a lot of garter snakes. Is it is it something to do, like, with the sunbeam snakes in Malaysia, where you're having suburban development and the, the snakes get pushed out? Or is it well, just... That, just that, that, that is animal? a general problem for, for all of our snakes. But no, it's not the, the issue with the garter snakes. They, okay. They're just very secretive. And the majority of them that are caught are caught uh, crossing roads. Mm -hmm. But then some of them in some areas, like in KwaZulu-Natal, um, there's areas where you can flip rocks and, and come, come across quite a few of them. That's so cool. Awesome. What, about, what about forest cobras? Are, you, are they significant? or? So forest cobras, there's, there's two interesting things about them. The one is that, um, that they just about never bite. And the main reason for that... Uh, is that first of all they're in very dense vegetation so it's very easy for them to escape once there's there's problems um but the other thing and we use them in training is that they that they bite the least in training so a lot of snakes might occasionally strike out or you know try and bite but the forest cobras are very chill the other thing about the forest cobras and ours is now obviously subfulva it's no longer mineralica right is um we see a lot of cytotoxins in their venom. So in recent bites, we, we had one case where a woman had uh, two bites, one on each hand, uh, and she was uh, on a ventilator briefly. But I think there were some, there were some drugs involved as well. Uh, generally speaking, uh, with forest cobras, we see a fair amount of swelling, and, it's, uh, and the bites aren't that bad. And we see some necrosis as well. Some guys uh, lose uh, the odd finger. Very interesting. Both hands. I, I want to hear the rest of that story. <laughs> <laughs> she was at a she was at a backpacker's lodge, and apparently she saw it crawling towards her. Um, and then she tried to rescue uh, everyone present. So she grabbed the snake, got bitten. Grabbed her the other hand, got bitten. And so oh, the story geez. goes. You know, oh, amazing. Yeah, the the, the classic uh, uh, ego good Samaritan. <laughs> yes, yes. But as I, as I said, I think there was uh, more to that story. Yeah. Um, so, and now we've sorry, Phil. We've got to ask because Phil is just obsessed with them. What about ring calls? Oh, I'm not interested in those. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, the ring is actually a very interesting snake because uh, throughout most of its range, it's a grassland species. Um, so here in the high felt where we are, we see them. Um, we see them in grasslands, especially when there's uh, a bit of water close by. Because they're largely toad eaters, you know. They're more right. often not they'll eat toads, but they'll take rodents. And um, what's interesting about them is that they very often have a permanent hole that they live in. And they will be very close to their hole. So the moment there's disturbance, they straight down the hole and they're gone. And we find that a lot of dogs get bitten and killed because they corner the snakes. But people don't get bitten because they just, they just don't get near the snake. And when we know of a snake uh, on, a, on a small holding and you try and go and, and remove it, every time you get there, it's gone. It goes down its hole. So they really are difficult to catch. Uh, when you get down to the Western Cape, you start getting them in Fangbos as well. It's a very different vegetation. But, in, but, but by and large, it's a, it's a grassland species. It's um, obviously, uh, being a spitting snake, they have a, they have a predominantly cytotoxic venom. And... Um, I've, I, I don't think that I know of adults that have ever been placed on a ventilator with a bite. We, we do see a bit of tissue damage, 
Right. But uh, it's not that bad a bite. And as I said, we haven't had a fatality in over 40 years. And the last fatality, I think, was a seven-month-old child. Wow. And that now, is that because of the use of antivenom? Or is it no, no, no. We just, first of all, we don't see many bites. Um, right. I hear of maybe three, two or three run cross bites a year at most. And most of those don't even get antivenom because the symptoms don't justify it. Wow. Interesting. Uh, what, what about the smaller, I'm going to call them cobras, but the, the aspidellaps, things like that, are they uh, causing problems or? Not really. Again, they, they're nocturnal. Um, they, they're very quick to escape if you give them half a chance. Um, they're locally abundant. Uh, you know, if you go into parts of the West Coast, uh, we, can, we can, if we do some road cruising, we can find uh, a dozen in one evening easily. Uh, but bites are very, very few and far between. But, you know, if you look at some of the work that Brian Fry did, their venom is comparable with that of Cape Cobras, but they just don't have the volume. Yeah. You know, it's a small snake. They have a very small venom yield. Uh, not to be messed with. Uh, uh, in Namibia, we've just had another confirmed case of, uh, I think, the third or fourth confirmed fatality with the children that were bitten by a speedlips lubricus calzi. So up there, it's a, it's a pretty bad bite. So, um, I, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't think you should, uh, you should take chances with the, uh, with the spitalaps. They, they, they're pretty nasty. With the, with the scutatus, uh, we, we very rarely see bites, and we've seen some bites with quite a bit of tissue damage as well, in scutatus, uh, but not so much in, uh, in lubricus. Uh, and and staying with Namibia, I mean, I appreciate they're very small, but what about some of the other sort of dwarf bitters? Are we getting many bites from them? We, we are seeing some bites, and quite often they are snake handlers, but uh, we are seeing uh, legitimate bites as well. And um, there's no question that uh, there's a fair amount of neurotoxins in their venom. Um, and there's one or two documented cases of bitter zeropaga with children that were, they were in a bit of trouble. Um, wow. With, the, with Cornuta and Cordalis, um, and that uh, the same would be for Rubida and, and the other small ones. Um, there's there's a fair amount of pain and swelling and a bit of local tissue damage, but most of those bites aren't that bad. Okay. That's interesting. Is there? I mean, going slightly off topic. Is there much wild collecting of those snakes? Are they heavily protected, or is there a, a, a legal trade in them? Yeah, that's that, that's quite a debate. Uh, uh, I'm I'm very involved with the green scorpions. We're looking at uh, the legal pet, uh, the, you know, the, the legal pet trade very very carefully, and and things have certainly slowed down. Having said that, we had two Germans arrested three days ago. It's always always Germans. Always Germans. So you know, I think I think it's become more difficult for guys to hide snakes in luggage with international flights. And to just send stuff with couriers because there's a lot more X-raying going around. Yeah. Uh, so yes, it is a problem, and, uh, and and you know we keep an eye on it, but um, I don't think that it's um, as enormous a problem as it was in the past. One of the things, one of the things that have happened uh, more recently is the new trick, of course, is to claim that everything is captive bred. Um, and we had um, we had guys exporting uh, uh, sand gazers, smog giganteus. And they were claiming that they were breeding like 60 babies a year. Just about no one in the world has bred more than one or two at a time. Um, and the last big shipment uh, was actually stopped. And uh, they checked the DNA of the babies and of the parents. And none of them were related to the parents. 
Oh, it's good so to hear that. We, it's good to hear they're getting stopped. We have some initiatives where we are suggesting that if one wants to captive breed um, reptiles, that you should have your breeding animals DNA'd, and if you can prove that the progeny come from those parents, do it. You know, uh, I think what will be great about that is um, you will pay a little bit more for very good animals, and it's going to stop a lot of illegal trade. 100%. I think most uh, yeah. decent keepers would rather have a locality-specific, yes. uh, decent captive-bred animal yeah. rather than some stressed wild-caught thing. And I, I so personally the, have animals... Gaps, sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, no, I was just going to say, I personally have animals that came from multiple different countries that were had paperwork to be captive-bred, and they were not at all. Because when you not. when you look at enough of these animals, I you can you can tell, you know. Yeah, yeah. So one of the one of the flaws we still have, we have nine provinces in South Africa, each province with its own laws, and um, KwaZulu Natal is still um, um, a little bit behind, <coughs> except for a few snakes like green mamas and gaboon adders and uh, the dwarf adders. There, you can pretty much keep anything and breed them and and you know do what you want to. But they're also tightening up now. Uh, they they're becoming more strict, um, and yeah, I think it's you know we need to we need to get our act together. We need to get our uh, everything legitimate. Um, we've got a guy breeding so, uh, so presumably or allegedly breeding dwarf chameleons and exporting them. But a lot of the ones that he that he's supposedly breeding only occur in protected areas. So how do you get broodstock? If you if they only occur in protected areas, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another snake that we just need to mention is the berg adder, Bitisotropus. Yes. Um, it's an interesting snake because we have we basically have four isolated populations. It might even be five, but you have them in the Cape Fold Mountains. You have them in the KwaZulu Natal Drakensberg. Uh, you have them in Pumalanga Drakensberg, and then Eastern Zimbabwe, and um, they have a pretty nasty venom. That's uh, somewhat cytotoxic, cause a bit of pain and swelling. Uh, does affect people's vision. Some people have gone permanently blind. Wow. Uh, affects your, your senses of taste and smell. But then it also affects breathing. And um, in a study of 14 cases over 20 years, every single victim, five to seven hours after the bite, had to be ventilated because they stopped breathing. Wow. Wow. So, how, how long does that last for? Uh, several hours or even several days. Wow. That's so that's, a, that's an interesting one. And again, we don't have anti-venom. Uh, no. We have one young child now, I think it's three years after a bite, he still has massively dilated pupils three years really? later. Really? And in Europe, that snake is fairly common in with venomous keepers and yeah. not not considered to be, you know, particularly a, a dangerous um, specimen. Yeah. Yeah, we've seen some, we see some horrible bites, very scary. Um, I had a case where a youngster was bitten. Um, they were an hour and a half up the mountain from the vehicle. We got them, they walked down to the vehicle. They were driving to the hospital and um, he was fine. Uh, two hours after the bite, nothing. And then he started vomiting. And four hours later, he was in a ventilator. Wow. Absolutely yeah. incredible. I think that's just crossed that off my wish list now. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, I was going to bring up another, since we're just going down the gauntlet of animals that, you know, Nipper and I want to keep. um, (laughs) uh, I have kept night adders frequently in the past. I don't have any currently, um, but I've noticed that there's been a lot of comparisons with egg eaters. And I I never put, like, seeing them in captivity, I never put comparison, like, oh, they look alike. I always considered more egg eaters to be more of the the Eckes clone or the Eckes copy, right? Yeah. But I, I see you post a lot of stuff about night adders recently as well. Yeah, we post a lot of that. It's a, a little bit like the difference between an elephant and a rhino, I think, but, but some people do get. And the only thing that confuses them is that the, the egg eater may have some chevron markings on the neck region. Right, but if you look at the snakes, I mean, they're just so so different. Egg eaters are nocturnal; they're long and thin. They have heavily cured scales. They have vertical pupils. Uh, night adders are more active in the day. They toad eaters. They um, they have a velvety skin. They uh, shorter and fatter. They they're very very different snakes. I, I really don't know how people mistake them. Yeah, I, I I agree. What about? I mean, I know it's it's considered mildly venomous, but have you had any reports of bites from beak snakes? Um, from the rufous beak snakes, there are two document one or two documented cases. Um, it's near impossible to get bitten. You've got to stick your finger down their throat, I think. Um, but they first of all, they're not common. They right. they're not common at all. They're very fast moving, and. Um, I've, uh, in the recent years, I've photographed maybe three individuals. Uh, we don't see a lot of them in captivity. But there was one case where the victim had a fair amount of hemorrhaging uh, and really? hematomas. So I wouldn't want to mess with them too much. Um, you know, there's even a, a well-documented case of the bird, a fancy peacock, who got bitten by um, our uh, sp- uh, spotted harlequin snake, Homorosi yeah. lactius. And... Um, it bit him, so he sort of thought, "What well, he thought, this is a good time to get some nice photographs of a of a snake biting." So he was sort of kicking away, and then and the next day or so, his entire arm was just purple everywhere wow. with the subcutaneous bleeding. Oof! And I Incredible. think there's a very good lesson in that, and it's something that a lot of us slip up on. Don't even with very mildly venomous snakes like our grass snakes, the Samophis, the Samophylax, uh, don't let them chew on you. The telescopists, you know. Uh, uh, what we're seeing is we're seeing more and more reactions where not even herpetologists with, with multiple bites, but where they let them chew, maybe to take a photograph, and we're seeing quite uh, interesting reactions. If you give that snake time to chew, and again, they have the duvenoids glands, and they get more venom into you, you're going to have far more significant symptoms than, than just a minor bit of itching. Excellent. I was I mean, hoping that you'd say that. <laughs> Well, we both keep Telescopus, um, and to my mind, it's, it's one of South Africa's most beautiful-looking snakes. I mean, 100%. Semi-annulatus is just... Yeah, it's stunning. It's an incredible thing. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. 100%. Um, so what is your, your role going forward now um, with the Institute? What, 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 is, what is your uh, five-year plan for that? What, what, what's, what's your drive now? Well, we've got we've got fifty year plans. Uh, uh, <laughs> um, so first of all, um, you know our main our our, our main um, income comes from training and equipment, and uh, we have uh, by far the bulk of the the African training market. Uh, we train over six thousand people a year. 
So, um, who who, are you, who is your target audience? Who are you training? Um, law it's, enforcement. It's, it's largely in South Africa. It's largely corporates, and those corporates would be um, companies where they have snakes on site. It, it sort of falls under the Occupational Health and Safety Act. So we we train them in snake awareness, how to react. Uh, we every training facility that we visit will. Um, <coughs> a day later, they get a poster from Luke that the dangerous snakes of your site. Um, we train them up in, in first aid. Uh, we uh, look at um, the treatment, uh, you know, what, what protocols they have in place. And then on these sites, we're also training up a team of people in safe snake removal because they have environmental policies that can no longer kill snakes. And this removal is done with, with, with equipment. And we have adapted and changed equipment and we've modified equipment and we have incredibly good protocols. We, we really have, uh, you know, the best in the market. So that we do for, for mines, construction companies, solar farms, wind farms, um, uh, the Department of Defense, the police, the um, various conservation organizations. But we also have clients in about 19 African countries. So we've actually trained from Egypt through Senegal, Guinea, Ghana, right down to Angola, Mozambique, uh, all over the place. Incredible. So that's one very important part of our, our business. Um, the other part is that we do public courses. And the public courses initially were like a um, little fun thing that we do now and then because people want to do snake removal. Well, it now turns out that our public courses are so popular that um, virtually every course is fully booked. And, uh, and we will have 50 people on a course three out of four weekends of the month. Wow. Um, and, um, and it's sort of the same sort of course, slightly adapted. And we teach them how to, uh, again, use hooks and tongs. Now, you know, a lot of people, um, and I, many of the keyboard warriors, have a lot to say about snake tongs. You know, they're yes. these horrible things and you hurt snakes in that. Trust me, a snake tongue is infinitely better than a spade. There's yeah. no comparison. <laughs> And 100%. we teach people how to use the tongs properly. And that's the big difference because a lot of people don't know how to use tongs. So we teach them how to use tongs in a very, very safe manner where you don't hurt the snake, where we containerize them in a safe manner. And our protocols really are, are excellent. And, and if ever you guys can get to South Africa, I'd love to see you on one of our courses. 100%. So, I'm packed these, already. Uh, these, these courses work really well. But what will happen with these courses is so, on our initial course, we don't allow any physical contact with the snake. So there's no tailing, no necking, no nothing. Um, so we, we literally teach people with a, a cape cobra, you very gently pick it up at mid-body, you get it into a bucket or a tube, and it's easy. It's, uh, and some people will say to us that you can't use a single hook on a puff adder, you're going to hurt its, uh, its, its backbone. We have puff adders that we've been using single hooks on for 10 years, and we x-ray them, and they're perfect. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with them, but it's the it's the uh, the person that's using the tool yes. and how that person uses it. That's what it's all about. Technique, technique, technique. A technique. Uh, so the next level, a lot of people will say to us, "Gosh, that was fun. How do I get more experience?" So now I've introduced boot camp, and boot camp is a whole day of practical. So we start you off in the morning, and you use the tongs uh, on a puffer in a bucket in a tube in a bucket, and then we'll get the the tongs out, and you go in a bucket in a tube in a bucket. And then we go one level up where we start teaching you how to tail. And we will teach you exactly what snakes not to tail and what snakes you can tail. 
And the methods are very, very important. And I see this quite often with people tailing snakes. They, you do it wrong, you're going to get yourself bitten. Yeah, so you're going to really know what you're doing. So we teach the right methods. And then what we do after the lunch is we, we then have scenarios where we hide snakes in old buildings and you've got to choose your equipment and you've got to go and then you've got to go and get your snake out and you've got to secure it. Brilliant. So those are the boot camps. They're really, really popular. And then our third level is we do advanced snake handling. And this is largely for people like yourselves who want to keep venomous, people who work at snake parks. And they all go through tubing, probing, uh, necking. We teach them everything. We teach them how to neck mambas because the only way to catch a black mamba is to neck it. And if I go out to catch a, a problem black mamba, my average capture t- takes about 22 seconds. None of this shouting and screaming as you see on television. Um, it's a very simple procedure. We have an additional course. We do an advanced first aid for snake bite course. Um, and there I use some of what I train in basic life support. So we look at uh, uh, bag valve masks, uh, pocket masks, uh, proper applications of pressure bandages of the smart bandages. So that's pretty much what we do training wise. Um, but then on the equipment side, uh, as you guys have seen, we have a massive range of equipment. We make our own equipment. We have um, uh, about 15 different snake tongs in our range. We have 12 different uh, snake gaiters from cheap, uh, if effective, but very heavy ones to super lightweight gaiters that are made out of Kevlar uh, and most of these we manufacture it. We make it ourselves. Um, so the equipment's a very big part of our business, and we we are now starting to go wholesale in South Africa, where we're gonna you'll be able to get our tongs and hooks and gaiters in camping stores, outdoor stores. So we we're busy with that at the moment. Incredible, fantastic. Um, going back to the first aid thing, it, it's something of a uh, an interest of mine. Emergency first aid is some, uh, for work as well. Um, what bandages are you using? Because you, there is a debate about pressure bandages for snake bites. Yes. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, Nippa, there's lots of debates. You know, um, there's a lot of guys who to use them effectively and who quite like them. A lot of people who, uh, who don't think they work at all. Um, so basically, um, I'm quite fortunate that I, I get to speak at snake bite symposiums in the USA. Uh, I go to Spain, I go to, to the Netherlands, uh, Kenya, and uh, most of these meetings, uh, I share a stage with, with David Worrell, David Williams, Brian Fry, uh, Wolfgang Wuster, um, and the likes. And we chat about these things all the time. And we look at the latest results, and we look at what works and what doesn't. And, um, and locally, we have uh, uh, Dr. Colin Tilbury, who's published extensively on Snakebite. We have Dr. Muller who's uh, he, he sort of snake bite protocol is the standard at the moment. So all of these guys are involved in our decisions. And when I, when I write something about first aid and snake bite, I take all of their, uh, their views into consideration. So having said all of that, um, we, uh, we use the smart bandages from Australia, uh, the ones with the rectangles printed on them uh, that you stretch until they make the squares. And we only recommend them for black mamba and Cape Cobra bites, nothing else. If you're bitten by the other cobras, you don't don't worry about. Uh, if we look at our snake bite deaths in South Africa, uh, the ten to twelve deaths that we see every year are cape cobra and black mamba bites, and the reason for that is that people stop breathing. So you want to get to a hospital as quickly as possible. You want to delay symptoms if you can with a pressure bandage, um, 
and uh, you want to get that patient intubated and ventilated as soon as you can. So, so we teach for those bites to use pressure bandages. Um, and we also teach, as I've mentioned, you know, the use of pocket masks and the use of uh, bag valve masks. But what, we, what you have to bear in mind with first aid is you've got to consider your audience. You know, if I'm teaching uh, uh, one of you guys first aid that's keeping venomous, it's going to be very different from a school teacher who takes kids on, on camps. Yeah. And uh, he's done a first aid level one course where they teach you how to put one plaster on. Um, I can't teach that guy how to use a bag valve mask in the, in a half an hour. Yeah. So it's too complex. So all of these things come into play, you know, and you have to consider all of these different things. Um, but yes, we do, we do, we do, we do uh, uh, recommend uh, the, the Australian smart bandages for, um, for neurotoxic bites. That's grand. So when, you, when you're out field herping, when you're not super busy teaching everybody else, if you get a minute to yourself and you're out first uh, field herping, what, what do you pack in your kit? Uh, Herp-wise or first aid-wise or what? Everything. First aid-wise, okay. what, what are you packing? So when we, when we do our courses, we, we obviously take uh, BVMs, we take uh, pressure bandages, we take adrenaline with us. Uh, we have our own anti-venom on standby. Um, never been necessary, but we, we get for that. Um, field herping-wise, you know, I've spent the last 15 years with, uh, with Aaron Bauer from Villanova. We, we've done uh, Namibia north, west, south, east. We've done every mountain range, every riverbed. We can pretty much tell you exactly where every single reptile is in Namibia and yeah. every single reptile is not. Um, That's we've, fantastic. Um, that we've done southern and western uh, um, uh, Angola. I've done quite a bit of work up in Mozambique. Uh, a lot of the trips uh, with Aaron, uh, the late Bull Branch, was always with us when he could. Um, but, but but most of my work has been with Aaron. And um, in the field, um, I, I take a stump ripper, and that's about it. A few bags to bag stuff, a few containers, and uh, the rest is in the vehicle. But I just go for the with the stump ripper. Yeah, because I, I mean. I doubt there's anything that you've ever experienced that you couldn't just use the stump ripper to bring it back to the truck or to Absolutely. and get whatever other tools or accoutrement you may need. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very comfortable grabbing big mamas with a stump ripper in my hand. That's no problem. That's yeah. cool. And you know, just while we're on field herping, I know you have seen all the species in South Africa. Is that correct? No, no, I see most of them, not all you of see, them. You, you know, see most some, of them. There, there are some mysteries. And and taxonomically, I mean, at the moment, it's an absolute nightmare with these darn uh, phylogenists and all their DNA nonsense oh, driving us insane. I, I, um, I, was, I was so close to finishing Europe, so close, and now I've got six species to see. Well, three, I mean, as I tell people, you did finish Europe, and then you got shafted. <laughs> I, I've still got uh, now. I've, I've still got uh, one snake to see. Tenuous if it's in Europe or not, um, or, or whether you count that island as Europe. But they they uh, on DNA they've split the most boring brown little gecko you've ever seen into four separate species now. Yeah. So now I've got to go to back to places and just try and find this gecko that looks exactly like the other gecko I've already seen, but it just lives on a different island. So, so that, I, I, I feel your pain. 
the, the time has come that we very seriously have to rethink the definition of a species, which one of the 20 odd we're going to use. And, and I firmly believe that we must put far more emphasis again on morphology and on behavior. You can't describe a species if you've never seen what it does. And then we can worry about the DNA. And I have no doubt that 10 years from now, we're going to look back and we're going to say, I can't believe we used those primitive genes back in 2021. Yeah. Because yeah. it's all going to be a load of rubbish by then. We'll have far better genes to work with. And they, they'll chuck a lot of that out. 100%. And I, yeah. I, I, do, I do think there's a lot of um, people splitting species just to pass their PhD and 100%. Get, get their name in a paper and that sort of thing. And it's we, just a real pain. We, we have a gecko in Akrabis called the Akrabis gecko. And used to be, it used to be, well, it's a Pachydactus atorquatus. It's a little rock-living gecko that runs around on the edges of rocks. It's got these short legs. It's got the lamellae, and it does its thing on the rocks, and we know its behavior very well. In the same area, we have, it used to be Pachydactus goody, which is a completely different animal. It's a long-legged animal that doesn't run around on rocks, and it comes out of these avalanches of rocks at night walking on its long legs. And they've just synonymized them because the, D the DNA is the same. They're completely different animals in appearance yeah. and behavior in every which way, except DNA. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. So the other thing, guys, that I wanted to mention, uh, getting back to the African uh, Snake Bite Institute Foundation. So part of uh, the one big initiative is that we're trying to, uh, to get these anti-venom bank banks going. The other thing that we're doing is we provide free training to medical doctors. So we go around the country and we get doctors uh, at a hospital together or at various uh, uh, conferences. And uh, we, I lecture them on, on the use of anti-venom and on venomous snakes. And that we provide absolutely free. We charge them no fee whatsoever. Um, another initiative that we're busy with, with my dear friend Paul Muller down in, uh, uh, in uh, Gainesville in Florida, uh, and we've got uh, Dr. Ab Abercrombie also involved in this initiative, is we're busy trying to buy a farm in the Macroland, which we're going to gear up for uh, master's and PhD students to come and do their field studies on reptiles at wow. very, very affordable rates, like just about for nothing. So we, uh, we're busy with the legalities and the tax implications, but at this rate, I think by next year, we'll have a, we'll have a research farm going in the Macroland, and it'll be open for anyone anywhere in the world. Incredible. Fantastic. Absolutely incredible. We will um, put links in the bio so that I presume that there is a, a funding uh, part to this. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, we, and, Phil and I will ensure that that's in the bio so that if anybody's um, listening to this and they want to contribute, that they can... In case, uh, in case Phil has a few spare million dollars or something. Um, and it, it, it is a registered NPO, so uh, zero of the money goes to any other expense or salaries. Everything goes straight into the work we're doing. That's fantastic. Um, Phil, we spoke about books uh, while we were waiting yes. for, for Nipper to finish that cup of tea earlier. Um <laughs> We um, so I've, I've, I've just done a major revision of the complete guide to snakes. It'll be out September next year. It's going to be great. It's a, a virtually total rewrite with new photographs, distribution maps, and a lot of information. Uh, Luke and I are working on um, the reptiles and amphibians of Southern Africa, about 850 species. That'll be out the following May, and then um, we Luke and myself have just signed a contract to 
to do a massive revision of the, the classic 1962 Fitzsimmons snacks. Wow. And we're really, really excited about it. And our publisher has said to us, guys, uh, there's no expenses spared here. You do what you want to do. And if it's too big for a single volume, we'll make it a double volume. That's so awesome. It's going to be fantastic. Yeah. Absolutely. Monumental. Awesome. More room I need to find. I'm going to have to buy another bookcase, I think. I know. <laughs> Literally. I, I just was organizing. You said you were organizing stuff before you came on, Nipper. I'm at max on two two full bookshelves. And you know the problem is, I think these damn bookshelf manufacturers in Sweden or wherever the hell they are, they know that we need more of them. So they make them smaller, so we have to keep buying more. 100%. That's what it is. Now, 100%. speaking on the terms of both the African Snake Bite Institute and the African Snake Bite Foundation and books on the shelf, the ASI also has an amazing mobile app that ah the app we have to touch on the app i mean yeah, I'm, app. I'm i'm virtually eight thousand miles away from you and i'm on the app every day so the app was was really interesting we have a very dear friend who's now sort of become part of the asi uh, and he's a he's an it geek um uh, his late father said to me once that uh, he said i never thought my son is going to become a typist um and venom is just a he's a wizard so venom uh runs our website he runs our social media uh, you know with on on snakes of southern africa we now uh, close to a quarter million people on that page the asr page we close to a quarter million people uh, we on when a three quarter we now have a three quarter of a million people on our social media and the, the app has had 167,000 downloads it's it's one of the top 10 reference wow. apps in africa wow um, and all thanks to villain he's done phenomenal stuff so We've got on there, we've got snake, spider, and scorpion profiles. You're not sure what a puffer looks like. You've caught up the profile. You've got four color photographs, distribution map, and some information. Uh, we've got um, 800 snake removers that if you, in any town in South Africa, you press on snake removal if you have a snake in your garden, and the nearest guy's name pops up, and then the app will tell you how far he is away from you. So you just phone him, and he comes along, and he removes it for you. That's we've amazing. got local snakes. We've taken all the, the, the re snake records for South Africa over the last 200 years, probably about 30,000 records. And we've digitized them in a quarter degree grid squares. So we have a feature called local snakes. So if you're in Kokstad and you press on local snakes, it'll list only the snakes in that area within about a 80 kilometer radius. So there we go. Uh, we have first aid on it. We have um, the medical treatment of snake bite. We have... Um, a feature that Luke runs called um, um, Snake, I think it's, it's a request an ID. So no matter what you see, you photograph it with your app, it gets emailed to Luke, he can see where you sent it from, and he will ID it and email you back. And on a busy day, he'll have over two, 300 photographs in a single day. Wow. He has to ID. That's awesome. Fantastic. So the app is working incredibly well. We have, uh, over, we have over 2,000 medical doctors on the app. And they furnace in the early hours of the morning. We've got a snake bite victim. They've killed the snake or they photographed it. Can you help us? Can you tell us what it is? Can you tell us what to do? Incredible. That's incredi incredible. Absolutely. Dude, incredible. And the app is free. Costs you nothing. Yeah, it, I'm on it. I'm, I'm literally <laughs> on it. I think this sounds so cliche, but I'm on it all the time, just memorizing the amazing stuff that's on it. Now, how often do you, do you guys save all those photos? 
And and do you ever get photos of some unique phenotype or some, you know, rare color morph or something that you would want to save as for future ID use? So uh, not really for future ID use, uh, Phil, but what uh, Luke is busy with is we can, in the next two years, double our knowledge of the distribution of snakes in South Africa through, oh, yeah. the, through the app and through our Facebook pages. So any interesting uh, distributional photograph that we see, we will then contact the person and verify, was it sent from, was it seen where you sent it from or did you photograph it in your holiday and you're only sending it now? Right, so we right. double check on them. But uh, we, we will probably, uh, in the next two years, add another 30,000 records for distribution for snakes of South Africa. Wow. So that, that is significant. Absolutely awesome. Absolutely awesome. I, I never forget the first time, because I, I go on the website all the time, and it, the little pop-up came on, and it says, have you seen our mobile app? You should download it. You like snakes? <laughs> Click this button. And I did, and, and it's it's phenomenal. I can't speak highly enough about it. We need, we need to do that for the USA. Yeah, we do. It's, um, it's very difficult because a lot, it, it, I'm noticing it now more and more where uh, the ID groups for North American species are becoming more and more prevalent, but at the same time, the people that the people that are, contributing to it for the most part they don't need it yeah does that make sense yes and the, the people that are just killing the snake willy-nilly yeah they, they don't care you know yeah. so until i i think until things start to evolve a little more mainstream wise in the u.s at least um i don't think it would be that uh accepted as of yet but i definitely see things like that coming i do yeah so what what we can see in south africa is uh, our snake tongue sales are virtually doubling every year. Wow. That's, that's, that's significant. So yeah. a lot of farmers who would in the past take out a shotgun, uh, we, we have a, a one-and-a-half-meter uh, snake tongue, and we have a two-meter snake tongue. Yeah. So the one-and-a-half-meter one is the most popular one because you're just a little bit further away from the snake than the, a regular one-meter snake tongue. Right. And they work really well. Brilliant. And then now you have all your, I was telling you earlier how much I love the travel containers and the, the, yeah. the, the nice cases. And the, now you have the takedown tongs and oh, awesome. And it never stops. There's new products all the time. We just keep on developing and adding and it's, yep, it's yeah. interesting. I, uh, I recently wrote, so we, Nipper and I are both contributors for a magazine and a free online magazine called the Herbert Culture Magazine. Um, and I recently just wrote an article for uh, transporting reptiles uh, because so many people, they go to a reptile show and they buy, you know, their ball python in a, in a deli cup and they take it home. But what if you're transporting something that has uh, that's venomous or what if you're transporting something that needs particular uh, maintained habitat throughout its transportation, whatever it be. Uh, and one of the greatest things is your tubes. And it's a brilliant idea. And yep. I see all the videos of you guys using them, the photographs, and I actually mentioned the ASI and the tubes in the article. And uh, cool, because just things like that, the things that you guys are doing of thinking outside the box and evolving techniques that you know we as herpers have, have come to know and love, and making it bigger and better every day, every year. It's phenomenal. 
I love did it. You, did you see our uh, electronic snake trap that we made? Yes, I did. Very, yeah, so we, very we, cool. We, we sold a number of them, and we now have a module on the trap that um, if you – the moment it traps the snake, it sends you a text message. That's brilliant. Yeah. I was actually meaning to ask you, how many other animals get caught in that accidentally? Uh, very few, because the way that we've done it is we have multiple sensors. So it's got a trigger of – we can set it. Right. Um, it's got a trigger of uh, more than one sensor. So if a, if a bug or a rodent goes in, they, they can't trigger off two sensors. So they run out again. The trap doesn't close. And the, the odds of a platysaurus sliding through it is slim to none. <laughs> we haven't had that yet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I like it. Incredible. You've also, you've also got a massive range of really nice T-shirts. Yeah. Yes. More, yeah. yeah, really cool. And we're, and we're expanding that all the time. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, I told Johan that after this, uh, I'm going to send him an email because I've been procrastinating shopping. You know, I see that that Rand conversion and international shipping, and I get a little a little terrified. But at this point, screw it; it's got to happen. Oh, I've got some already. I rock them quite a lot. It's really <laughs> uh, really good quality T-shirts, though. Really, yeah. the, the the manufacturer they're not the, the normal cheap. They're they're decent quality shirts. Yeah, that we we look after that. Guys, it's yeah. easier just. Come over and you just pick it up here. It's a lot easier. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Sounds like a plan. Sounds like a plan. So, uh, so Mr. Johan, where can people find you? Well, um, the easiest is you just Google Johan Marais and I pop up first. Love it. Um, otherwise, you can just Google African Snakebite Institute uh, and that'll pop, as, pop up as well. So it'll be very, very easy to find. Um, Snakes of Southern Africa Facebook page is, is our page, <coughs> as is um, African Snakebite Institute. So we, we're really easy to find. Awesome. Is there any other questions you may have, Nipper? No, I, I'm blown away. That, that was I know. phenomenal. I mean, I really, I know how incredibly busy you are. Um, yeah. We really do appreciate you coming on and talking to us. 100%. Um, we will put all the links in the bio for the Institute. Um, hopefully get some people to contribute, get some people to buy equipment, get some people to buy t-shirts and that sort of thing. It's uh, it's a fabulous thing. Yeah. So thank you so much for coming on. It's, it's been amazing. That's an absolute pleasure. I hope we can do this again. hundred percent. We're going to, we're going to convince you to uh, come on for the, the wrinkles round table talks. Yeah. Sounds good. I'm in. Perfect. Uh, well, Ladies and germs, thank you all for listening to the Venom Exchange Radio. My name is Phil Wolf. I'm Nipper Reed. It's been amazing. And you're Hunter Ray. Thanks, guys. My pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Next time, I think we have got... Who have we got coming on next? We've got the biggest English Venomous Keeper. We've got Peter Gibbons coming on. He's currently helping in. He's currently helping in Africa at the minute, I believe. He's gone mamba yeah. hunting, so uh, we'll talk to him about that and his phenomenal collection of mambas, uh, cobras, and various other bits and bobs. So uh, we look forward to that one as well. Awesome. Thank you again. Keep in touch, guys. Many thanks. Absolutely, we will do. absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks, sir.